Sometime we've been going through the book of Exodus, we actually come this morning to the end. The last chapter of the book of Exodus, which is chapter 40, our New Testament complementary passage is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. So if you open your Bibles to John's Revelation, in honor of God's word, please stand. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more. For the former things have passed away. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to Exodus chapter 40. Continuing in the reading of God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and bring up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and shall consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar, so that the altar may become most holy. You shall anoint the basin, and its stand, and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and shall wash them with water, and put on Aaron the holy garments. You shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as a priest. You shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, and anoint them as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests." And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, at the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting at the at the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of the meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. 
He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Thus far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father, we have read... We come to the hearing and the preaching of your word, and we pray that you would show us our Savior, your presence, our ever comfort and help in time of need. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So when we began the worship service, I asked you a question. I said, what do you think of when you think of home? When, when I say the word home, what is it that comes to your mind? Is it the place you grew up in? Is it a state? Is it a country? Is it a house? Is home the house that you grew up in? Exodus answers that question for the Christian. Exodus answers, where is home? And I want to look at this passage now in two ways. The first is the tapestry. The second is the tabernacle. The tapestry itself, for this, for this series on Exodus, we have spoken about the tapestry of salvation, this picture that God is weaving, that the more we get insight into this glorious picture, the more beautiful His salvation is. And maybe... I can get my point across, what I'm trying to communicate, by asking you this question. What were you doing July 21st of 2021? Where were you July 21st of 2021? And the reason that I ask that question is because that was the day that we had the first sermon on the book of Exodus. 2021, July, was when we began this series in Exodus, a little over 18 months ago, a little over a year and a half. What's going on in your life in the last year and a half? Marriages, loved ones passing away, job loss, move, maybe you're new at Sterling since 2021, new church, that's pretty significant. The point that I'm trying to drive home is that every single one of us have been on a pilgrim journey since we began the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus starts with a people that are homeless and oppressed. You remember how the the story opens? A Pharaoh rose who did not know Joseph. The children of Israel were many and they, you know, he was afraid that they 
take over and all that sort of stuff. And so he starts slaughtering their sons. The, the book of Exodus opens with a homeless people. They're dwelling in the land of Egypt. A people who are suffering oppression. And it closes with God's presence right there in their midst. That glorious passage at the end of chapter 40 of God's glory coming down over the tabernacle and filling it so that Moses couldn't even walk into it. That's the trajectory of the book of Exodus. From homelessness to home. Because that's what a tabernacle is. A tabernacle is a tent. And a tent is a home. And that is this trajectory of Exodus. It's begun not just with God's mighty hand of deliverance and his demonstration of his superiority over Egypt and all other gods, but then also his protecting hand over his people while they're in the wilderness, they're being attacked by people, his provision for people, manna and water, his his blessing upon his people, his leading his people, his entire image of Eden, that place of perfect fellowship and harmony with God, and God providing a way to come back into that perfect place through the sacrificial system. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And rather than killing Adam and Eve, God provided a lamb. He provided a sacrifice until that day that Jesus Christ could say, it is finished. Until that day that John the Baptist could point and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The longing of God's people for holiness, for restoration, for peace and fellowship is the story of Exodus. That's exactly what Exodus has been about. And in between chapter 1 and chapter 40, in between there's the story of liberation, the story of love, the story of protection, also the story of punishment, the golden calf, the people that were slaughtered, the people that had to drink the melted down gold from this calf. God disciplining his people, but God protecting his people. The question, where is home? For the believer, for the Christian, what, let me back up, let me back up. The question, where is home, really gets to the heart of what is your identity. Home is the place that you long for. Home is the place that you feel safe, that you feel secure. Home, where is that? I feel at home, where? Do I feel... And, just personally, I am a Southerner. I am born and sort of raised <laughs> in the South. It's complicated, but anyway, I'm a Southerner. <laughs> I was born and sort of raised in the South. Should I feel more at home in the South where they eat grits like God intended, not hominy? I don't know what that stuff is, but it's not grits, and it should never be eaten. 
Am I more at home in the South where they eat food the way that I think it should be eaten? Or am I more at home with my fellow believers regardless of where they come from? And you see, that's what the book of Exodus is telling you. That's the book of Exodus is telling you this homelessness to home trajectory is one that focuses us in on the centrality of God. The centrality of His presence. The centrality of Him being in our midst. The centrality of the work of Jesus Christ. It's the very hope that you and I have. It's the very hope that is set before us. Did you hear that language from Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4? The dwelling place of God is with man, and he will wipe away every tear. There will be no more sickness, there will be more, no more death, for the Lamb will be in their midst. And all the way from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation, we have this recognition that we find our home. We find our rest only when we are at rest in God. At a young man, this week actually, that was asking me some life wisdom questions. And one of them young man from this con- congregation. So <laughs> but, but it was a young man of my acquaintance that was asking some life wisdom questions, and particularly the, the question of, was he, did I think he was ready to pursue a relationship leading to marriage? And I said to this young man, I said, young man, (laughs) when you are at peace with God, his providence, what he's doing in your life, his control over you, his direction, when you are at peace with God, and when you are at peace with your fellow man, then to invite someone into that peace is going to be a strong ingredient towards building a peaceful relationship, a peaceful marriage, a good, fruitful marriage, a positive thing. But when you're at war with God, or when you're at war with your fellow man, then inviting someone into that relationship is just inviting them into war. (laughs) And your relationship is going to be toxic. Your relationship is going to be full of war. The first priority is coming to this place of peace with God and peace with your fellow man. And from there, you're healthy. I don't care what your income is. I don't care what your education is. I don't care what, what whatever arbitrary standards the world sets in terms of just justifying whether a person gets married or not. That's irrelevant to me. What is important is when you're at peace with God and when you're at peace with your fellow man, you'll actually be at the place where you can say, Lord, if marriage is not your calling in my life, okay, I submit to you. Lord, if marriage is my calling in life, glorious. Help me do it to your glory. We can, we can lay ourselves at Christ's feet and truly trust Him. When we're at peace with God 
and at peace with one another. And beloved, do you see that that's what Exodus is? Do you see it? The sacrificial system, the temple, all of these things, how to be at peace with God. The law given to us in chapter 20, how to live at peace with God. The judicial regulations that came immediately in the, in the, in the following chapters, 21 and following. How to live at peace with one another. All of this worship that we've been looking at. Why we are at peace with God. What the elements are that we should find most precious and most central in our worship of God. All of these things that we have been seeing pictures of are pointing us to the reality that beloved God has made a way to bring wandering sheep home. He's made a way to bring oppressed people to liberty. He's made a way to bring people who are under the bondage of sin and death. He has made a way to bring those people to new life. And beloved, hear me clearly. That sovereign, gracious work of God. What did the Israelites do to get their liberty from Egypt? What did they do to accomplish getting away from Pharaoh and destroying his armies? Not a solitary thing. God said, get up and go, and they got up and went. That was their contribution. It was God who parted the Red Sea. Well, first it was God who brought the plague, God who brought part of the Red Sea, God who closed the Red Sea. God initiated absolutely every single bit of it. And he kept his children through. But he also said, you will be holy as I am holy. We began this series in in the adult Sunday school class on Bonhoeffer's book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he opens with these words, the enemy of the church is cheap grace. Grace that doesn't cost you a thing is a grace that is no biblical grace. Because grace cost the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, grace cost him his life. Don't tell me grace is cheap. It cost the life of Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, it will cost you yours as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that you are bought with a price? Your body is not yours, but it was bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your soul, which are God's. Grace costs everything. And that's the message of Exodus. He doesn't bring the people of Israel out of Egypt in order to just save I'm going to give you candy and sweets and treats all the way through and you just have to just generically love me and say, thanks for bringing me through the Red Sea. No, he says, this is what holiness is. Be holy. 
have nothing else in your life more important than me. Don't play around with my name and take it in vain. All of the Ten Commandments, all of the judicial laws, all of the sacrificial laws, all of the regulations, be holy. It will cost you everything. But where would you rather be? Where would the children of Israel rather be? In chapter 1 or in chapter 40? Which do you think is a better scenario for the average Israelite? Chapter 1, where they're under the bondage to Pharaoh, and he's saying, go build more bricks, and you're lazy people, and I'm going to take away even the straw. Or chapter 40, where God says, here's the way that you can be right with me, and I will dwell in your very midst. You will see my glory as I take the cloud up and prepare you for moving. You will see my glory as I remain here in the camp with you. You will see that I am your God and you are my people. That tapestry of Exodus is a glorious tapestry. But before we leave chapter or the book of Exodus, let's just pause for a second on the tabernacle itself, the second part of the, the question, the tabernacle. Beginning in 1991, uh, the Burning Man Festival was a big deal out in uh, Nevada, in the desert in Nevada. And for those of you who may not know anything about the Burning Man Festival, uh, it is an annual get-together of community that is centered on artistic expression, individual expression, and self-reliance. And so it's a big deal that everybody is supposed to come with their own campers and their own tents, and they're supposed to take, you know, bring in their own water and their own food. And then at the same time, we all share food and water with each other, so it's community, but we're all coming and we're all having this week-long festival that ends with, burning a big, huge, ginormous man. And there's more to it than that. The reason I'm bringing up the Burning Man Festival is this. This was what the Burning Man Festival was all about. Community, self-reliance, bohemians gathering together once a year. Then it became popular. Then Hollywood celebrities and social media influencers said, guys, I'm not going into the hot desert in Nevada without air conditioning. Are you kidding me? And so they invented, they coined a term that you may have heard. Have you ever heard the term glamping? That comes out of the Burning Man Festival. Because glamping is glamorous camping. And so all these people from Hollywood showing up, they've already got their tent set up for them. Somebody has set up the tent. These are pavilions that are air-conditioned, have their own private bathrooms and showers and everything else. So they're camping at the Burning Man Festival along beside all these other people who have driven in a school bus and laying on the floor of the school bus all week long. You've got Mr. Influencer, Mr. Hollywood Celeb in this gorgeous pavilion tent thing. Now, I want you to capture that idea and recognize 
This is the first glamping. <laughs> this tent, this tabernacle, is the most stunning tent in the entire nation. This is drenched in gold. This is huge. This is fine twined linen and gold filigree and the capitals of the, of the posts that are set in gold and silver and bronze and the basins. This is a beautiful structure. But it's the same structure as the people. It's a tent. And so just think of the imagery there. God dwelling in our midst, but God not brought down to my level. God not reduced to something that is childish when He kindly reaches and says, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. God does not debase Himself when He humbles Himself. But rather, God lifts you and me out of the dust when he enters into relationship with us. And that's what the tabernacle means. That's what a tent is about. I live in a tent. God lives in a tent. My light goes out at night when I sleep, but God's light is always on. His tent is always there. He is always at home. His cloud goes up. When it's time for us to go, his cloud remains when it's time for us to stay. That tent of meeting, that tent of God's presence is the most stunning tent that is there. Moses, I don't, I don't have a hot clue what Moses' tent looks like. Presumably it looked like everybody else's tent. Moses isn't the great king. Joshua, I have no clue what Joshua's tent looks like. Presumably, Joshua's tent looked like everybody else's. (laughs) These are not political entities that are being established here, but this is the people of God. And they are worshiping God and declaring that with the construction of this tabernacle. But from the original time, from the original construction of this tent, all the way through, they recognized it's just a picture. It's just a shadow. It's a picture of something that is coming. It's a picture of something that is real. The writer of the Hebrews says that Abraham, by faith, lived as a pilgrim in the land of promise. For he was looking for a city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. If Abraham, hundreds of years before Moses, if Abraham understood that the promises of God were promises that were pointing him to heaven, do you think maybe Moses got it? Do you think maybe the children of Israel understood? Do you think maybe the prophets understood? Think of Isaiah and the promise of the one who is going to come. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. They always knew 
that these were just pictures. They always knew that these were just shadows and types. Very quickly, I want to add this one other thing. Have you ever wondered why God's Word is inspired? Why is God's Word providentially kept free from error since its original writing, since its original transmission from God? Why do we need an inspired Bible? Now, part of that is obviously, part of the answer to that is obviously because the, the, the doctrines are pure and they should not be corrupted. But there's another aspect that I think you and I need to incorporate. You and I need to, to, to bring into our answer to that question of why is it important that the Bible is inspired? And here's the answer. Beloved, ever since these words were written, God has used these words by His Holy Spirit to speak to His children. These words, these scenes, this message, has been used not just for that first generation that were camped on the plains of Moab, but it was used to a people that are struggling with sin and looking to their own kings rather than God's king. Saul and later kings of Israel, wicked kings. They're, they're, they're written for a people that are in exile in Babylon. They're written for a people who are under the oppression of Roman rule. They're written for new believers, new Christians. They're written for people who are facing persecution from the Roman Empire. They're written for people down through the years. God kept these words pure, and God kept these words perfect because He intended for these words to be preached and read again and again and again and again, and He meant it for you and for me. These words belong to you just as much as they belong to me. God has said, you and I are at peace, and my home is with you. Beloved, I believe that in our culture today, we are entering into a confrontation with a culture that is pursuing death and finding, destroying the very idea of a person's identity as an objective reality. But rather, a person's identity is subjective and can be changed. That is certainly a big part of the culture of our day. And what do we do to that? What do we say about that? Do we just pound our fists and say, oh, transgenderism, bad, 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 bad. Liberal, do, do, we, do we just, you know, if I can point out the flaw, then that makes me okay. Let me, let me suggest... <laughs> An alternative. How do you think the children of Israel felt moving from being a homeless and oppressed people in chapter 1 
to a liberated people with the God of heaven dwelling in their midst in chapter 40. I don't think it's too great a leap to say, I think they were thrilled. I think they were delighted. I think they were joyful. I think they were grateful. I I think that they were so thankful for the mercy of God in delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh. And I think if you and I understand that we are in these words, that these texts are our texts, that this is your life, this is my life, the gospel is sweet. The gospel is welcoming and enticing. When it comes from a heart that is absolutely captured, by this wonder, this beauty, the comfort of knowing that I am at peace with God. My home, my identity is in Him. The psalmist earlier we read, the heavens may shake, the earth shatter, everything go crazy, but I will not be moved. And beloved, that is a comfort That is what people today are looking for. Where can I find stability? Where can I find answers? Where can I find what is true and sure? And the more they chase down this toxic path of death, the more dissatisfied they'll become. And if you and I can give a message, give a testimony, Give a personal message of God's amazing love to me. That he took me, oppressed by sin, exiled from his face, and brought me home. That he took you, suffering under death and sin, and brought you to himself, drew you with cords of love. And beloved, you and I have a beautiful, glorious message. I think the offense, generically speaking, of this message, the offense is that being made right with God is not something that you or I can do. There's not anything that you and I can do to close the gap. And I don't like that message because that message tells me things I don't like to hear about myself. I'm not that bad. You don't understand. They're worse. I was brought up this way. It's my culture. My mom. My dad. The message of the gospel is I am so broken that I have no hope for any peace with God unless God himself makes peace for me. I am so given over to death that I would never choose life. Life must choose me. Your stony heart must be replaced by a heart 
of flesh. You are only saved by what someone else has done. 